to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave Holly and I are talking to multi-award-winning composer John Corigliano. John, it's such a privilege to see you again. Welcome to Composing Myself. Where are we speaking to you from today? I'm in Kent Cliffs, New York, near Carmel, New York, about 55 miles north of Manhattan in a little country place that I go to whenever I can. Well, it's great to see you and, you know, I'm... Hopefully that we'll have enough time to cover what's been a sh- truly impressive career as a composer, John. It's such a privilege to talk to you. And um, I just wanted to sort of jump in with, uh, you know, what do you recall as your very first musical experience? Wow. Well, my mother teaching piano uh, in Brooklyn and my father playing concertos with the New York Philharmonic. He was the concertmaster of the Philharmonic going to those concerto concerts with the Phil and also my mother's teaching kids to play the piano. Those are my first influences and the first time I heard music, in a sense. Do do, do you remember a piece of music that sort of struck you, that that made you think, oh, that's amazing? Well, I do. It was was the violent concerto of Sir William Walden. Uh, My father was learning it. And I was amazed at the changing meters and all of the contemporary things he did because he often played traditional pieces. And my mind started working, how did he do that, Walden? How did he get these fantastic changing rhythms constantly from bar to bar? How did he get those incredibly lush chords that I'd never even heard before? And I know the Walden very well, and I love it. But when he was learning it, I was learning it too. Can I ask, a, I, I might be a slightly ignorant question, but what is a concertmaster? I, I don't know that term. The concertmaster is the first violinist that sits uh, on the very uh, left side of the conductor, and he plays all the solos, and he also does the bowings for the whole sections of the uh, strings so that they all play together. Um, and he is very often called to play as a soloist because he's a really a soloist who's then also able to lead his section, the first violins, into wonderful you know, symmetry when they all play together and they're so together. That's because of the bowings and the shoulders, in a sense. The concertmaster uses his body language to get the uh, orchestra to really play together. So, so it, was a, it was a professional music family you were, you were born into? A professional music family. My mother taught. She never played in public, but she taught piano uh, very well. And kids would come every day after school, you know, to have their lessons. And I was in my room, and I would hear them play. So I would hear all these Schumann and Czerny and all of these little exercises, pieces that the kids played with my mother supervising. She was a very good pianist, but she never had the nerve to play in public. But she occasionally accompanied my father when he was learning a concerto. 
or I, I, I know she's a terrific pianist. She also was able to play the piano part of my very difficult violin and piano sonata that I wrote for my parents uh, when I was in my early 20s. A thought just struck me, because both of your parents played music. Did, did it, either of them ever write music? No, no, none of, none of them wrote. Uh, my mother was yeah. a pianist and my father a violinist. No composing. Uh, and I grew up being nervous about my father's playing in the concert hall when he played solos. When he's playing the Tchaikovsky concerto, I would sit in the green room, which is backstage, where it had a little speaker, and it plays the what's happening in Carnegie Hall when the New York Philharmonic and my father are playing solos. And I would hunch over because I knew all the difficult spots. And when he got it right, I sat up straight, and then I hunched down for the next difficult spot. And actually, it turned out that it got me to the point where when I was a composer for the first 10 or 15 years of my compositional life, I never sat in the hall for a performance. I'd sit in the hall during the rehearsals, and during the performance, I would go backstage again and listen in the green room to speakers because I was just too nervous to be on sitting in, a, in, in the hall with people all around me. I twitched and turned and did all sorts of stuff. So when my pieces were played, I wasn't there. I just walked out and took a bow. And only about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, did I start to go in the hall and actually sit during my performances. Can I take you back in time, John? And, you know, what was the, the first piece of music that you composed that you would say as your opus one, if you like? Well, not till I got to Columbia, uh, when I started composing there. When I was in high school, I was in a new, uh, Brooklyn high school uh, that was good, very, very good music department. And a woman named Mrs. Bella Tillis, who was my, uh, my love, she was the person who encouraged me to go into composition and to be a composer. Uh, my parents did not want me to be a musician of any kind. I would set against it. And she encouraged me, and I wrote this high school alma mater, you know, when I left. And then when I got into Columbia, I majored in music composition at Columbia and started writing music. And my very first pieces are published now. There's a little song cycle called Cookie Four, uh, four short little songs like Cookie. Mm. And then a two piano piece called Kaleidoscope. Yeah. I wrote while I was a student at Columbia and they are performed and played. And um, that's, that was the beginning of my career. When I was a student at Columbia, I started writing and then I just continued writing from then on. It, it sounds to me that composition was something that chose you, John. It's not maybe necessarily a career you chose for yourself, is that? No, I wanted to be a cartoonist. When I grew up, the most creative and exciting things I ever saw were the Walt Disney original cartoons. You know, Dumbo and, and Bambi. And, uh, Bambi, I, was, I almost had to leave the, the theater I was weeping so much at Bambi's mother's death. And, you know, same thing with Dumbo. And very tear-inducing things. And I thought, this is the most creative thing of anything. It's more creative than music, than art. It's more creative than anything. You can take animation anywhere. You can do anything you want. You can morph one you know, kind of creature into another kind of creature. And, of course, um, animation now is, is three-dimensional animation, if you actually see the rounded chase, but in those days it was purely two-dimensional. Uh, the figures were absolutely flat, but abs they were wonderful, and you believed them, and 
That's what I love. And I really wanted to do that. But my love of music was also very, very strong. And when I got into Columbia and majored in music, I started writing. And for the first time, I said, you know, maybe I can be a composer. Right out of Columbia and never stopped. Could, could, could you draw? Do you, draw, do you still draw? And... I, I draw badly. I draw badly. That was a little part of the problem. Is I, I, I ended up being able to play things on the keyboard. Not that I studied piano with my mother because she and I had a fight the second lesson and I never learned the scales or anything like that, but I can play by ear. And I did that and um, then started writing music down and started composing and it took over from my love of uh, animation, although I still think animation is one of the most creative things you can do. Um, I'm, uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit to me is an, an absolute masterpiece, combination of live and animation. Mm. Um, I've, I've seen that film three times, and every time I'm just bewildered by how they did that my magical thing that they did. It's really fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I would love to sometimes explore an animated film, but... Uh, I haven't done that. I've, only, I've scored three films, but no animation. But I, that's something I kind of think would be wonderful to do. I don't even know how early the composer comes into the process of composing an animation. Probably pretty early. Um, but I don't know. People have never done that. I wouldn't mind doing it. That's one thing I would take on. In terms of... Let's just stick with film for a moment, moment John, because you, you won the Oscar for your score to The Red Violin. And uh, also, you know, Pulitzer Prize, the Gravemeyer Award, countless Grammys. You know, what, which of those awards are you most proud of? Well, probably the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, when I grew up and as a young composer, that was... That was the gateway. That was that was the the sign that we really have arrived and done something important. And I used to hear, you know, you know the day that poets are announced. It's a certain day of the week. I've forgotten now. In the spring, and that day, I would think to myself, and uh, what's it going to be? I think Sherman would have submitted a piece of mine. Mm-hmm. And years I didn't get it, and then I got it angrier, angrier every day, every year. I didn't get it, and I got angry with my string quartet, with my opera, The Ghosts of Versailles, with my first symphony, all passed over. And I thought, I'm never going to get it. And then when I finally got it, um, they called me from the Times and they said, how do you feel? And I said, well, I'm trying to feel some way of getting over my anger. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was angry all morning about the poster, and then I got it. I said, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I was furious. <laughs> Damn it, I won it, you know. <laughs> so I guess that was the most, I mean, the Oscar was kind of bonus. I never expected to get an Oscar. And uh, I don't think anybody else did, but I, uh, when I got it, uh, I had no speech prepared. I walked up there and I didn't know what to say because I was sure that a, another film, which was very popular, was going to get it. And so was everybody else, I thought. So I walked up on the stage and ad-libbed my, my speech. And I was thanking uh, everybody, you know, that's what you do when you get an award, you thank, you know, actually, uh, the violinist uh, Joshua Bell, who played the violin through that so gorgeously, and um, Francois Girard, the director, 
and Peter Gell produced the audio track. So I thanked all these people, and I was about to thank my mother. And just then, a strobe light on facing me goes on. Get off. <laughs> and so I had to leave. I had to leave. Uh, and the music started playing, and I knew that was the time to leave. Because there was a lot, so much time to leave. Of course, my mother, when I spoke to her, I was told by the woman who took care of her in Florida that she was watching the Oscars. And when I did that and gave my speech, she leaned forward to the television and she said very angrily, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was next, but I didn't get a chance to do it. <laughs> oh. Poor Mrs. C. Yeah. And and uh, writing music for film, John, how did you find that? Because I think coming into, uh, I, I suppose, a visually-led art form after having written music that merely comes from your wonderful imagination, where, do you have a preference? Well, it's much easier. Um, because, first of all, you have limits. They're set by the film, the length of the cues, and the director's vision of what the music is and what you see on the screen. So you have three minutes and 37 seconds to do this. And sometimes in all good states, nine minutes without any knowledge, but you have to have certain things happen. This ape man goes into the zoo and you have to have different kind of primitive music. And then suddenly he's out on the street and dogs are chasing him and you have to have a different kind of music. But you know what you have to do. Mm. The horrible thing is getting a big score page and looking at it and saying, what do I want to do and not knowing? And so composing abstractly is so difficult. Mm. It's beyond description. And composing for a reason, that is, you know, film or incidental music to a play or anything like that, even a ballet, you have a lot given to you by the people who are also collaborating with you, and it makes it much easier. Um, so it's an easier task, and it's, but it's high, very high pressure because you're the last thing that they do when they make a film, the music is the last thing that happens and they put it all together and they do it out, you know, um, various tests to see how people like it. So the director wants to get the music in right away so when they give you the music to write, you don't have much time. Mm. I remember there's a very, mm. Bell was approached about writing a film, I think Disney approached him, and uh, he liked the idea and then they said, we need it in three weeks. And he said, well, I'll take seven weeks. Or I'll take eight weeks. And maybe even ten weeks. But I can't do it in three. And that's what happened. He didn't do it. Uh, you have to be able to produce a lot of music in a very short time. And since I write with a pencil on paper, writing music for me is quite laborious. I don't use Sibelius uh, or any of these notation devices because I never learned how to do it. And now... I'm too late to learn, and I just still have my little pencil on the page. So, uh, basically, for me, it was very tough getting all that music written, but I kind of knew what I had to write, and that made it easier. Did, did you um, do, uh, conduct when, you, when you're... Um, no. Um, again, it's, I never could perform in music because of my father's playing these solos and me getting so nervous getting on the stage and actually conducting. I did it once down in San Antonio uh, with my elegy, a seven-minute piece, my own piece. Mm -hmm. I got so nervous before it and during it. And afterwards, I said, you know, it's not worth it. 
I don't, I'd rather get nervous and write a piece and have a piece at the end of this than, than to conduct a piece and get so nervous and then at the end of it, it's over. I'd much rather spend that anxiety on something that's permanent, which is written. Could I ask you a little bit about, do, do, you, do you have a preferred sort of method and process of writing? Do you write at a particular time of day or um, oh. in a particular room? Or, or? Well, I, I do need uh, everything to be in order. The bed has to be made. Everything has to be kind of in order for me to go into the chaos of my mind. And I go, I have a studio here in the country and, and, and also in New York. I go into my room. Um, when I am composing, which I am not right now, um, I get up, have coffee, compose a while, stop and have lunch, take a nap, then get up at about three or four o'clock and continue um, composing till about 7.30 and then have dinner and the day's over. So there are two periods. I think it's important that sleep is very important to creation. You know, you, you need your subconscious to be able to solve some of these problems. And sometimes when your conscious mind is trying to make this thing work, your subconscious mind is not able to come up with a solution. But when you go to sleep and you wake up, you have a freshness of the subconscious having supplied some information to the brain, and it helps compose. So that's how I do it. I, I kind of break it up into two periods in a day. Is that inspiration? Is that no. what people would call inspiration? Inspiration. <laughs> I, um, I want to take you uh, into a piece, uh, one of your pieces, which is I think my favourite piece, which is the the first symphony, and you talk about writing music for a reason, and there was a real reason for that symphony oh, yeah. to come out, wasn't that? I'd, I'd love to hear about that again from you, John. Well, I was composer in residence with the Chicago Symphony under Sir George Scholte, the great conductor, and I was supposed to write a major piece for them, and he suggested I write a concerto for orchestra. We've done my clarinet concerto in tournaments and liked my orchestral run. And it was okay. I, I, I said, okay, that's what I'll do. Um, and it was during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. And it was very nice to say that, but every other day I was going to a memorial service for somebody who died who I knew. I mean, I lost over 100 people that I knew. Um, it's just beyond description. And it was so divorced from running a killer for all. And then my closest friend, Sheldon Stroman, who lives in Chicago and is a pianist, was a pianist, um, and he came down with AIDS, and I was in the hospital room when the doctors told him that the uh, pneumonia had, he had was pneumocystis pneumonia and that, in fact, he had AIDS. And in those days, it was a death sentence. He lived two years. That's about all you could live with ACT, this pill they were given sort of let you live a little longer. And I thought to myself, I can't. This is, my life is so um, filled with this rage and remembrance, in a sense, which is what I call the first movement, rage at the that I can't do anything to help anybody who's dying this way, which of course happens to anybody who loves someone who's dying, and the remembrance of all these fabulous times you have. And I decided I'd got to write about that, and I went to see the president, Henry Fogel, of the uh, Chicago Symphony, and 
I said, you know, I'm going to do this. I just want you to know that's because I, I, that's what I want to do. And he said, we'll back you 100%. In those days, it really was a political issue. Yeah. Because the president, Ronald Reagan, never mentioned it. People were dying all over the place. And there was no mention of it. It was this plague. Nobody said it AIDS. Nobody mentioned it in the government. And, you know, people just ignored it. And these people were dying. So anyway, I, I spent a year and a half or two years, two years, writing this piece. By the time it was performed, Shelley was very sick. He had, had meningitis and then lost most of his body weight. He was about 75 pounds. And he came to the premiere, which was given by Daniel Barenborn, who's mm. coming in to be the conductor uh, with the Chicago Symphony. He came to the first performance, and he died a week after the premiere. Um, I could go into all the details of the friends I had memorialized in that, um, mm. that symphony, but it really, Shelley was the last score for me. I can't write abstract music about virtuosity when such emotional uh, weight is on me every minute of my life. Also, am I going to get it? I mean, nobody knew. I mean, it's a piece that has maintained its place in the repertoire, John, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, it must be over yeah. 200 orchestras now that oh, have played it. More than 300, and it's now being played as a tragic symphony, like the Tchaikovsky Pathetique. Yeah. It's not, not played as an AIDS symphony, because AIDS right now is manageable. It's played mm. as, as a tragic symphony, which is exactly the right thing. Yeah. Uh, when, during the AIDS epidemic, I went to... Um, the Ukraine, uh, into uh, Kiev, and they were playing the symphony in Kiev. There was no AIDS there, nobody ever heard of it, and they had a poster that just listed the movements, but they didn't print any program notes at all, so the people coming in just heard it as a tragic symphony. And three weeks later, I was in San Francisco, and everybody heard it as an AIDS symphony, mm. and they're both correct. Anything yeah. you bring to this. If you bring the sorrow of AIDS into this, you can feel all of that. But if you bring sorrow of dementia or cancer or anything else that's hopeless and that you can't, you get rage-filled because you're powerless and you keep remembering these wonderful things that you did with this wonderful person who's going to die, it's, it's, it's just a tragic work. Um, and it was deeply felt. And I had... I was asked at the premiere, uh, uh, a reporter came and said, do you know about the political implications of this? I said, I have no idea about that. I really wrote this to my friend that I'm losing and that I've lost. And I had no idea. And all of a sudden, my God, is it political? What does that have to do with my symphony? You know, I, 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 was, <laughs> I had no idea that it was going to be seen in that way. For, for me, a project, I went straight to it on, on the list of, of your works, which was the, the Dylan lyrics that you composed oh, yes. songs for. And they were fantastic. Awesome. And it was really interesting. Words that I'm so familiar with, 
that, that require one set of melodies than listening to yours, but they really worked, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great project. I, uh, Sylvia McNair, a soprano, asked me to write uh, a large song cycle for her Carnegie Hall performance. And she wanted American, and so did I. And I wanted to write lyrics to uh, poems that are um, known to everybody. I mean, Robert Frost and Emily Dickinson are known to some people, but Bob Dylan's lyrics are known to everybody. And I missed out on Bob Dylan um, in the 60s when he was doing these wonderful things. The music never caught my ear. So I would be in a coffee house, I'm sure. I don't know for sure. And I was playing and I was talking and having coffee with somebody. Uh, I just never learned it. And I never heard the songs. So what I did was I got a book, huge volume of his lyrics. And I poured through the lyrics and I put these seven poems out as and ordered them the way I wanted to order them. And they became my my selection. We had a big negotiation with Bob Dylan's manager because they oh, kept <laughs> well they kept on thinking I was doing some version of his music. I said, No, no, not his music. I said, if if Goethe writes a poem and uh, Hugo Wolf sets it and Brahms sets it and Schumann sets it, there'll all be different settings, but the poem is the same. I want to use lyrics that he wrote and write my music to it the way any great poetry is universally uh, adaptable to different composers. And finally, we got that clear. Um, and what I like about it is that people who knew the melodies, uh, now I know the melodies, by the way, a student of mine brought me a CD that we made of all these seven songs in order, and I was staggered. It was so wildly different than I thought. Mr. Tambourine Man repeats the seven this this eight bar phrase forty two times, even before <laughs> and the verse are the same thing. I mean, it, it was bewildering how you, you see a, so, a folk song doesn't reflect necessarily the, the words in the music. Whereas we go back to Bach and Vivaldi and all these composers who took the words and colored them with the music, and that's the heritage I came from. So I'm coloring the words and reaching the mm. uh, association with word and music that us, the classical composers, do. And it's very different. And I love the fact that people hearing it know the original Dylan music, and now all of a sudden it's like this schizophrenic, they're hearing this other music, and it's fitting the words, but it's completely different. I think it's, it's a uh, very nice thing to do. I'm very glad I did it. It's a big side. Yeah, did, did you um, get any feedback from, from Bob Dylan? Mm-hmm. None. I sent him the completed record, which won Grammys for the singer and for me. Uh, I sent it to him, and he probably used a coaster to put some beer on or something. I don't know. <laughs> he certainly didn't listen to it, or if he listened to it, he certainly didn't respond. But I didn't expect him to. He's a very strange guy, and he, just, he didn't pick up his Nobel Prize. I mean, you know. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah, come on. I'm responding to me. I'm nobody compared to that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a cheeky question, though. What's it like living with another composer, with your wonderful husband, Mark Adamo, also a renowned composer in the Shermer catalogue? What's a house of two composers like? It's, it's pretty great. Um, we like each other's music very much. We understand it. We also use a basic philosophy of building a structure 
and then writing the music rather than starting to write the music on the first page and not knowing what's coming next. We both have this architectural view of music uh, and the way music and words can interact, let alone abstract music. And so uh, the last thing that I did was a, a big opera. Um, this is The Lord of Cries, mm. marked to the libretto, and I did the music. And uh, aside from one or two petulant moments, uh, I would say, <laughs> but generally, it worked. I mean, you know, I, I think we, uh, we he, he was kind of amazed at some of the things I did and other things made perfect sense to him. So um, it's, it's not the way he would have done it, but he also knew what kind of music I liked, he said, kind of sur surrealism. And the whole plot is surrealistic. And I was able to do that, and he said, this is something that I would never be able to do, that John would do, whereas I could never do Little Women, which he did so brilliantly. Mm. It was just done in London this last summer, um, and it's a brilliant opera that's been yeah. done hundreds of times all over the place, and uh, he deserves it because it's mm. magnificent. I couldn't have written that. So we, we admire each other's works. And we also work well together. I can show him something of mine I'm working on and he can give me comments, which is, if you don't have somebody who's also a composer with that kind of sensibility, you can't do. Mm. He's, I used to do that with Sheldon Schoenner. I used to be able to play music for him. He was not a composer. He was a pianist, but he had the skills of a composer in his brain. And he was able to talk with me about the piece as I was writing it. But then he died, and I had no one for all many, 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 many years to talk over my music. And it's always good to do, because you need some perspective. Mm. The same reason that a student comes to a teacher, the students at Juilliard that come to study with me, they need my distance and perspective to their upfront, very close vision of what something is. A like a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist yeah. would never say, if you say, then I said this to my wife, Psychiatrists would never say, well, why don't you say this to your wife? Psychiatrists would say, well, is that the only alternative you have? What else could you have said? What other things could you have done? And that's what I say to my students. Mm. Is that the only solution you could have to this? What about other solutions? Have you thought about A or B or C and maybe think of B, E, and F and come up with other solutions? Just like psychiatrists. From my distance, I'm able to get to their closeness. And you, you know, I was with one of your ex-students last night with Nico Muley. Oh, yes. And it's exactly how he describes what he learned from you, was that sense of having a different perspective on what you'd started down the road with, one of the many things he talks about. And, uh, John, I wanted to tell you, who taught you? Who's the, who was your composer teacher? I didn't have one. My yeah. father... My father teamed me up with two fellow Italian composers, hopefully to have them say he's not talented and stop. <laughs> <laughs> so Vittorio Giannini, I went to see him for one lesson. He looked at my work and he said, very good, keep going, you're doing fine. And also Paul Creston, which is also an Italian name originally, said the same thing to my father. They both said, leave him alone, he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have any lesson, just a single lesson with each one of them. Um, and I got into uh, teaching, but um, I never studied that. Uh, in Colombia, I studied group composition with Otto Lunin. So I was in a group of five or six people who didn't have private lessons. 
we had group composition. And I can't say that that was too much because uh, it really isn't the way I would teach composition. More mm-hmm. one, one is the way you could do it. But in those days, uh, that's the way they did it in Columbia. It's just quite some long time ago. So I never really had a teacher. My teacher is the scores and uh, recordings of all the great composers' uh, music. That's my teacher. That's what I learned from. When the LP record was invented in 1951, I was able to get recordings for the first time of contemporary music because old 78s really didn't do that aside from, say, Stravinsky. Uh, but they never recorded uh, avant-garde or interesting composers, you know, out of the mainstream. And Columbia Records had this wonderful series uh, in which they released tons and tons of contemporary music by composers, some of whom I hated, but I loved listening to all of the music, and I learned a lot from listening to music I would never had accessible before the recording, which is why I'm so fond of recordings and getting recordings made. I was... Um in the London office the other day and uh, I was sort of doing a bit of tidying and, and, and I came across something you gave me, John, which was the laser disc of the Ghost of Versailles. Oh, yes. Was that which, the Metropolitan Opera? It was the Metropolitan Opera, you know, the laser disc, which seemed oh, to yeah. come and go in a flash. Tell us about the Ghost of Versailles because that is one of the great nights out. How oh. the hell did you come up with that idea? Well, it's a kind of long story. It starts out with Renato Scotto, who I love, was coaching with uh, her, uh, and, and also giving recitals with my former partner, John Atkins, who was a pianist who accompanied mm-hmm. And she said to me, why don't you write a piece that I can do with orchestra instead of just singing a bunch of arias? I could do a 25-minute piece like a concerto with a subject and have a single shape, you know, so you just don't sing aria A, aria B, aria C. I thought that was a great idea. And she said, you should speak to Jimmy. That's James Levine. And so I called up and we made a dinner date at the Ginger Man, Jimmy and I, and we were talking, and he, he didn't seem that interested about talking about writing this piece for Scarpo. He said, I mean, would you be interested in writing an opera? And I said, oh, no. I said, Aaron Copeland told me that the last thing you should do with an opera, you spend eight, ten years writing it, and you get your one performance, and that's it. He had terrible luck with opera, with his Tenderland, which never really got many performances. He said, you could have written three good symphonies or four good symphonies in that time. So I said, I didn't even thought about it. I really hadn't thought about it, and here he was questioning me. And he said, well, what would you do if you wrote an opera? And I said, well... Um, I would write a bufa. And he nearly fell off his chair. A bufa. You know, in this day and age, everything is angst. All the artists to be in Schoenberg and the city of the Berg and all the German angst and the contemporary music, that's what it's going to be. I said, no. And he said, well, bufas don't work in our house. Mozart and Rossini, they're, they're meant for a smaller house. And I said, well, what would happen if somebody wrote a grand opera bufa? That is, use the opera bufa technique made the singer's tessitura and the orchestration all 21st century, then there was this 20th century um, talent. He said he really liked that. And he said, well, what would you do if you did an opera like that? And I said, well, I would like to go back to um, Beaumarchais, who was the author of The Barbara Seville and The Marriage of Figaro, 
two famous operas by two different people. And there was a third opera called The Guilty Mother, Amer Kubabla. And I said, I'd like to go back and maybe do that opera. The third of the trilogy, because there were three mm-hmm. operas involving Figaro and the Count and the Countess and all of Almaviva and Susanna. And I said, it seems to me I could do a bouffa on that on a grand scale. Well, he got really interested then. And the Mets started approaching me, and I was not doing anything. And at a certain point, Alice Tully, who I knew and loved very much, I was having dinner with Alice Tully, and she said, you know, dear, you better think about writing that opera for the Mets, because I was just at the board, and they were all voting to have you do it. So you better make up your mind. And I thought, wow. I thought, really, it was like writing an opera for the Met, the biggest institution I've ever seen, and probably in, in the world, next to one or two others, um, as your first opera, and writing an opera um, for the greatest singers in the world, and James and I mean, the whole thing is beyond belief. And so I hit the bullet. I said, all right, I'll do it. Um, I said, it's like the whole diamond. It's very beautiful, but it comes with a curse. <laughs> you know, I can't win this one. I mean, I'll, I'll, the critics are going to kill me, and people are not going to like it, but it's modern opera But anyway, I started researching Bill Hoffman, who was my dear friend for about 50 years or 16 years, uh, who is now deceased. But at that time, he was a wonderful playwright and poet. He wrote the play As AIDS, the first AIDS play on Broadway ever. I asked him, about this, and he said, well, let me get the translation, let me translate from Eric he spoke French, uh, and he looked, and he said, it's a terrible play, and, you know, nobody liked it, but Napoleon, I wonder if that's the truth, Napoleon's favorite play, but nobody liked <laughs> nobody else said that. But he said, you know, it has great characters in it, it's this character, Bajar, is this villain that um, is fantastic, and he's got all sorts of creatures and you know, in situations which we could build on. So then we started building the opera. And then I said, he said, I said, I want a world of smoke and make-believe. I want a world uh, where I can go from one, one kind of music to another. And he said, well, I can give you two things. I can give you dreams where anything can happen, or ghosts. And so we decided on the ghosts of Versailles and Marie Antoinette was not even in it at the beginning. It was all about a little play called La Mercupava being played before the ghosts of Versailles. And naturally, that meant the court of Louis and Marie Antoinette. And then we fleshed out those characters and the character of Beaumarchais, which were other characters. And we said, those characters are very interesting. Beaumarchais knew Marie Antoinette and Louis. And he was you know, an outrageous writer and spy and diplomat. I mean, he... He did about 60 different things. He helped uh, fund the Battle of Saratoga <laughs> for the war, during the Revolutionary War. He was an amazing uh, creature. And um, he wrote these three wild things. And Rossini took the Bottle of Seville and made it into the perfect opera. And it looks like an opera libero when you look at the play. Mozart had to redo and rethink the marriage of Figaro lot, And he did. The Ponte was a um, with, uh, with his librettist, and even so, it's funny, it's just the most beautiful music in the world, but you can't follow the plot in certain places. In the last time, nobody knows quite what's happening, but it happens to this beautiful music. So I decided 
we would have Marie Antoinette and Louis and the ghosts, a bunch of ghosts. And Beaumarchais would be trying to cheer Marie Antoinette, who was bemoaning the loss of her head and empire. <laughs> and, um, and to do that, he's creating a new opera, an opera for Antonia. And mm. this opera is going to be called, uh, well, it wasn't actually called La Mer Cubana. What do we call it? It's just here, create an opera with Figaro, steals the diamond necklace, gives it to Marie Antoinette, uh, and Marie Antoinette with it gets money and the whole royal family goes off to live in New York State where they were actually going to live. I mean, all of the things that Bill did were based on food. They were supposed to come to the New World. And they were mm. land near Philadelphia and there's a place in New York State that has rudimentary um, uh, buildings including the building for the Queen, which was a two-story building with a chandelier that doesn't exist anymore. But those were being, they, were, they waited, at, they didn't learn until two years after the uh, revolution that they lost the Queen and King. So uh, all this was realistic, but it was all fantasy. And mm. it was this, this growing menace and going to the, uh, the new world and live a new life. And so that's the whole plot. And it all gets tangled up because Figaro gets the necklace. And then instead of returning it to Marie Antoinette, he says, let's sell it for us and we can flee to the New World. Amoriva and the Countess and, you know, all of us, Susanna, <laughs> will go to the New World. And Marie Antoinette is watching this and gets upset at Beaumarchais. And Beaumarchais says they're not, they're not learning their lines. Singers have no minds, he says at one point. They just, <laughs> they just they're just not saying what I wrote. And he has to go into the opera with their mm. rescue the diamonds of Marianne which at the end he does. And at the very end, Marianne says, I now know your love for me is true. You've done all this, and I'm very much in love with you. Uh, I'll let the, I'll say it goes. And so as he puts the necklace around her neck, the guillotine in the distance drops, and the crowd cheers, and... The opera ends with Marie Antoinette and Beaumarchais embracing and going into these gardens of Adwoodmuskus uh, to live on paradise. So it's a buffa and it's serious. Yeah. Uh, Bejars yeah. in the first act is where he's funny, strange villain. In the second act, he turns really vicious. Excites the crowds to get Amaviva and all those people and get their heads off. So it's a it's an opera that's a buffa and it's serious. It's a big piece. And um, it has played a lot of places. There's a new recording and video out from Versailles. They did it actually mm. in the theater in yep. Versailles that was built for the wedding of Marie Antoinette and, and uh, Louis. And oh, yeah. I, I sat in the royal seat, which is a big thrill, looking down at uh, my opera being done about her as a ghost and Louis as a ghost. Oh, my God. How weird. Yeah. How fantastic. It was hugely successful. I thought they were going to kill me. I mean, there was a person, American in France, not to like already, American daring to take French themes and do it not to like, uh, writing music that has arias that are singable and, and tonal and lots of wild music, too. But it, it certainly is not part of a Boulez kind of world. No. I thought they're going to put in tomatoes and I'll just get it and I'll take the tomatoes and I'll take a bite out of one to show them how I feel. And <laughs> stage. 
But they loved it, and they filled the house every night, despite the transportation front yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. It, was like, it was quite a time. But, you know, we couldn't get there. Train strikes, so that, you know, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was filled up. And I think that, you know, your music communicates wherever it's played, you know, and I'm not surprised the French liked it, John. Um, and how you talk about it is just how it is. It's yeah. just great music that tells great stories and is memorable. One final question, if, if I may. is it, it, You mentioned... Um, Obviously, Jill is going to get you an animated film now. I've, I've written that down. Um, but do you, do you have any other ambitions, things you've not yet done that you'd no. like to? No, I don't. I feel I've done everything I've wanted to do. Mm. Everything. The second opera is a very different kind of opera. It's yeah. very dark and, and wild and, and crazy and sometimes really savage. Uh, yeah. it's, it's bringing together the Bacchae, the Bacchae of Euripides uh, and... Dracula in London to the Bacchae, Dionysus takes the form of, of Dracula to make the people in London heed his warning because every what the problem is in the Bacchae that they don't recognize and they won't recognize Dionysus. And he tries once and twice and finally exacts a very savage revenge in the Bacchae. In our opera, London is the same thing. They won't let him in. He's coming to London. He has the church, the ruined abbey of the church that he wants to go to. They won't let him in. They won't let him in there. They're very Victorian in their manner. And he finally also evokes a savage revenge. So unlike the, the plot of Dracula, the book, it doesn't end with a stake in the heart. It ends with Dionysus winning and saying, you, you, you must never deny me. Yes. And that's how it ends. And I guess Victorian England did the stereotype of it is it denied Dionysius. Right. It was very it, stiff and uh, laced up. Dionysius yeah. knew that when he came to rectify things. Yeah. So that's the second opera, which yeah. is got a year ago in Well, you, you've had a fantastic, amazing career. You have. You on, it on goes, it goes on. And thank you so much for spending time with us. I've really, thank really enjoyed this. And I've really enjoyed going around London listening to Symphony Number no. 1, which I recommend to everybody. Thank yeah. you so much. This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.